the significance that it seems to have for so many people, it, it doesn't diminish that I have been encountering this feeling which is deeper than affection, that, that is, is stirring in some way. Oh, <laughs> what a great movie that was. That was fantastic. And you know what the impact of that movie was? I'm a huge Green Bay Packer fan. They were, they were playing the Panthers for the championship game. Somebody had a banner at Lambeau Field that said, resistance is futile. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Both potent and enigmatic and mysterious. And I actually think that she can't be destroyed. I think she is an entity that will persist in the universe. Those are just some of the voices you'll hear in this special on Star Trek Day and my look to celebrate Star Trek's 57th birthday and also the 50th anniversary of Star Trek the Animated Series. I've been a fan of Star Trek really for over 50 years. It's been a love affair. At first, I was just enamored with all the technology and the characters. And as I got older, I really appreciated the message of that simple thing, the idic, infinite diversity and infinite combinations, and how we all have something to contribute within our differences. I really appreciated that. This special is part love affair and also really some effort in getting all these different interviews at various times, at conventions, on Zoom, on the phone, in person. I mean, it was a little bit of everything, but I enjoyed doing it. Let's kick things off with Rod Roddenberry. Star Trek is a platform to continue getting the message out there, the message of infinite diversity and infinite combinations, which is the true appreciation for all things that are different, regardless of form, but more so an idea. You know, in Star Trek, they were always out there exploring the galaxy, but they weren't looking for strange looking aliens. They were looking for intelligent beings that looked at the universe in a different way because we as a species had gotten to the point where we realized that it was our intellectual evolution that moved us forward. Our ability to digest and engage in new and different ideas is what made us smarter and able to survive where it was important to me to humanize my father because everyone put him so high up on a pedestal. And it's almost, it's really hard to, to identify with someone like that, but, but bringing him down to a more human um, palatable sort of form uh, allowed me as a son to connect more. And I, and I hope for audience members, they, they could see him and all his flaws, um, but still realize he was still an incredibly brilliant thinker who thought about the future of humanity, saw the worst that we could be and saw the best that we could be. Um, and people presented him as a futurist. And I, I would say that's 100% it because he's, his perspective was always 50 to 100 years ahead of us. Oh, yeah. um, there are many great thinkers out there in the world. There have been and there are and there continue to be. Some of them simply just don't have the prestige and aren't known. Uh, but what puts my father in that category is that he lived in that future. If you go back 100 years and you think about the kinds of things back then 
that they thought were absurd, blasphemy, offensive, and terrible. And look at some of those things today. They're commonplace. Yeah. Now, let's jump 100 years into the future. What do we think is absurd and, and insulting and offensive and rude? That will be commonplace and socially acceptable in the future. It's just my father was already there. So he was able to put that into Star Trek and sort of look back and say, why are we all bickering about this nonsense of skin color right now? I guarantee you, in the future, it will be a non-issue. There is more Star Trek Day on Sci-Fi Talk, so stay tuned. An executive of Paramount that not only helped bring Star Trek to light, but also Mission Impossible, was Herb Solo. And he spoke about Gene Roddenberry. I mean, I, I have a view of Gene that is different than many people have, having been with him at the very beginning when he walked into my office and handed me the piece of paper and went and said, I have an idea for a show. It's called Star Trek. I worked with him uh, and uh, only with him. We worked directly for about a year. So I know him on, on a very personal basis. I knew Gene for the time that I was uh, running Desilu. I think Gene uh, made a marvelous contribution to um, television in that he had an idea and uh, he surrounded himself with a handful of enormously talented professional people. And it was the enormously talented and professional people working with Gene that made Star Trek what it was. I call him the father of the Ferengi, and that is Herbert Wright. And here his take. On the great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry. Gene will always catch you off guard. I mean, mm -hmm. Gene, Gene was an amazing guy. Mm. Uh, he, he could be extremely funny. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was really feeling his way through the next generation because he had really not been given his opportunity. It seems ironic given, given his, his fame and, and, uh, you know, his talent, but he'd never been given the opportunity in the first series to really do what he wanted to do. Yeah. The classic series. I mean, he was on again, off again with, with the network and the studio. And then with the movies after the first one, and they kind of, it, it became its own steam engine. And while he got the, got the scripts, he, you know, really, it was really someone else getting to make the movies. So Next Generation was really the first opportunity for him to really put out there what he really felt that Star Trek should be all about. Leonard Nimoy on shooting The Naked Time, that pivotal scene in the briefing room that was a game changer for Spock. We were in a very fertile period, and, and the directors were open to ideas, and, and, and Bill Shatner and myself and, and D. Kelly often came up with character touches and character ideas and scene ideas that were, that were helpful. But the, you're, you're pointing to a, a very special one for me because um, it was a scene that was not in the original script. And uh, and I asked for that scene to be written. I described it. I said, I think it's, it's a chance to really reveal what the interior, what Spock's interior life is all about. So they wrote it for me. Uh, we staged it very quickly. It was late one day, um, almost wrap time, and they told me we just have one crack at this, and then we have to wrap. So we, we did it quickly, but it, it turned out to be quite effective, and, and shortly after that episode went on the air, the fan mail for Spock just went through the roof. Yeah. I think it really, it really touched a chord in the audience's feelings about the Spock character. I was lucky enough once to talk to James Dewan. He told me and my co-host, 
as I like to say for life, Ernest Lilly, a fan experience he once had. A fantastic fan mail that I got from a, a young lady way back 24, 25 years ago. And it was a suicide note, you know. I went to a friend of mine who was confined people, you know. He's passed away now, but the name is Ralph Thorson. Steve McQueen did his last movie on my friend Ralph Thorson. It's called The Hunter. And uh, I said to Ralph, I said, Ralph, uh, with this information, because it was very faint, with this information, do you think you can find out a telephone number for this young lady? I said, because she's in trouble. Six minutes. He gave me the telephone number. I called her up and I said, hi, this is Jimmy Doohan. I said, I just wanted to talk to you for a little while. She says, oh, 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 you know. And I said, I tell you what, I said, uh, in 10 days I'm going to be at uh, uh, Indianapolis doing a Star Trek convention there. I said, and I want to see you there. I said, no ifs, ands, or buts, I want to see you. Okay. No, no. So I saw her, and boy, I'm telling you, did she look like a suicide case. You couldn't believe it. And everything else. And I talked with her. I just, maybe 15, 20 minutes, I just gave her to get positive things for her and everything else. And then I said, I'm in two weeks, I'm going to be in St. Louis. I said, I want you there. This is all Midwest stuff because she's around Chicago and everything else. And we maybe saw each other. 15 to maybe 18 times she was getting better all the time and then there was a time when I I didn't see her she didn't come to anything got a letter about 6 or 7 years later I'll call her Mary she wrote me and she said I just want you to know that I have just had my master's degree in electronic engineering. <sighs> Boy, I'm telling you. And about four years later, I met her stepmother in Chicago, and she came up to me and she says, Oh, she says, I just can't tell you what you did for her. The greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Even just one life, you know. And, then, and that I've never heard from her since, you know. Well, that's wonderful. Just, oh, she's, that's, that's fantastic. Patrick Stewart, back in 1998, told us reporters in this roundtable that there was always a strong basis for Jean-Luc Picard. I knew we had a, a strong basis in the pilot episode, Encounter at Farpoint. In fact, Gene created for me and I think for most of the principal characters, all of the basic foundations that, that we were to build on over the years, there was so much present in those in, in that first two-hour script. The rest of it has been just pleasant fine-tuning and happy development of, of these characters, which has um, which has never ended. I've never. I don't think any of us have ever felt we have simply been. Uh, 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 going through the motions or simply repeating a tired process. Patrick Stewart reflects on how Star Trek is part of pop culture. I am astonished at the 
extent to which Star Trek, not just Next Generation, but the, the Next Generation of a particular way, has threaded itself into popular culture in in North America, and the significance that it seems to have for so many people, it, it doesn't diminish that I have been encountering this feeling, which is deeper than affection, that that is is stirring in some way. Uh, I know. I mean, Brian Singer has it. John Logan has it. You talk to them, and and there is a there is a, a manner and an attitude when they talk about this series, which goes beyond just something that uh, that you know they've they've been amused and entertained by. And I I used to think I could explain it. I, I had theories about it. I, I don't care to try to analyze it. It's simply become now for me at my age and the stage of my career deeply gratifying to find myself a part of it something that i never anticipated or looked for and indeed if it were all to end tomorrow god forbid um you know this is uh, something that i would well in a state feel good about anything i would feel good about it marina sternis reminded us about the acceptance of the next generation when it first came out because of the way DS9 and Voyager were, were greeted by the press and the media and, and the fans, they seem to think that's what happened when we started. And they have forgotten that when we started, people were actually saying, how dare you? What do you, how dare you even think of putting another Star Trek on? We love what we have. We don't want anything new. And who is this British bald guy wanting to be a captain? You know, um, fortunately, my character didn't have an equivalent in the first show, so I, I was let off pretty easily. Apart from, uh, I think it was uh, Rolling Stone who said I came from Long Island, <laughs> which actually I was actually quite pleased about because I didn't think I could do an American accent at the time. Um, but uh, we really had to win the audience and uh, that basically I think ha happened in around about the third season when the show really took off but no we had to really scramble and we weren't accepted with open arms like the, like the two new shows more Star Trek audio treats to come there's a lot of people that are purists that only like the original series writer Herbie J. Pilato told me his reasons on why he only likes the original series and I know recently you wrote an article on the original Star Trek as well. That's right, for, for uh, Medium.com. Yeah, I mean, I, and I write for Medium, yes, all the time. Mm -hmm. um, cool. But I love the original Star Trek more than anything, and the way I feel is, and I know this is probably controversial, but um, the other shows are just, in the movies, will never, ever, ever compare, in my opinion, the original series and the crazy thing is you know that all trekkers which are more sophisticated uh fans who are concerned with the philosophy of, sh of the show as well as trekkies who you know talk about the ears and stuff all we've ever wanted and i consider myself a trekker all we've ever wanted is kirk spock and mccoy back on tv played by shatner namoy and Kelly, and as well as the original cast. That's now never, ever going to happen, but that's no. all we ever wanted. No one wanted a next generation. Nobody wanted Voyager. Nobody wanted Deep Space Nine. Nobody definitely wanted Discovery, as far as I'm concerned. Nobody wanted, all, nobody wanted the movies. All we wanted was Star Trek back on TV 
with the original cast, and we never got it. Never. No, no, we never did. After 1968, uh, we've never seen him on television again. Uh, 69. So, that, 69. so yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was just well, well, disappointing to say the least. And, and of course I saw them, I would see them at conventions. I went to one in New York at the old Commodore and even Gene was there. And that's the only time I've seen them live and wow. it was a, a real treat. But, um, but yeah, it was, um, they were still young enough where you could bring them back to uh, to a starship and it wouldn't be like, you know, they're a little long in the tooth to be up and around the galaxy. But um, but the movies did some really good things uh, and, and, and that I liked. So, uh, you know, the original well, was, mo- the original was, series movies. Yeah, there was for a, a time, very short period, they were going to do Star Trek Phase 2. That's which right. Was going to be a new series with Nemo. Yeah. But then Star Wars came out and then and Paramount said, hey, let's make it a movie. But yeah. even Gene Roddenberry said, who well, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, in, in oh, Los Angeles and asking him for a job. Um, <laughs> even Gene Roddenberry was not happy with the movies because he felt the movies were about Kirk and Spock, whereas he wanted the movies to be just like the series, which was about the Enterprise. That happened to have Kirk and Spock and everybody on it. Um, you know, it, the show, the original show was about the Enterprise going through and, and finding these new, these new planets, these new civilizations, and the movies became about the characters. And quite frankly, that was the problem, too, with, with Next Generation, in my opinion. And all the other shows is that the A story, which used to be the adventure story of what was going on big, you know, in the big picture scheme of things. And then the B story was about the characters that shifted with the next generation. The A story became the character story. And then the B story, Oh yeah, well maybe we'll find a new civilization, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's just enough with the Klingons, enough with the, the Romulans, enough with the Borg. We get it. Where are the new civilizations where is the imagination of discovering new world i don't see it there is part of what he said is true as a fan myself i wanted the original series to come back on tv maybe in some new literations but also with the original cast as he said in the interview that never happened i was lucky enough to attend several roundtables including one for star trek first contact When I spoke to Jonathan Frakes recently, I gave him my experiences covering the first two TNG films. TNG films. Well, I actually was in the, uh, I've actually covered the roundtables for First Contact and Insurrection. No kidding. And you came in the room, you were the last one for for First Contact, and you said, how did we do? And I was the only one that said, I think you got a hit on your hands. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a great movie that was. That was fantastic. And you know what the impact of that movie was? I'm mm-hmm. a huge Green Bay Packer fan. They were, pay- they were playing the Panthers for the championship game. Somebody had a banner at Lambeau Field that said, Resistance is futile. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, we, I went to see, a, we had hosted a kind of a, I guess it was the 25th anniversary of it this year, last year. Yeah. Alfred came and a bunch of people from the uh, camp came and uh, John Knoll came from from 
um, ILM and Herman Zimmerman, the designer in Berman. And it was, it was so, it was such a great reunion of the filmmakers part of it. And yeah, because the script was bulletproof. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it had everything. And then the casting of Alfrey and, and James Cromwell, who had just come off Babe. Alice. Yeah. Yeah. It was really something. Yeah. I'm, I remember walking into this. These were the days where Paramount would fly you places. They put, uh, us, up yeah. to, they put us up to four seasons. We went to see it in Paramount Studios and, and that, an amazing screening room. Yes. And uh, so that was fun. Another thing on Insurrection, I was talking to F. Murray Abraham and he, was telling, he was telling me the story that he was, you know, he was at the end when Picard and Sona and the Sona were fighting each other. Um, he was he was firing his gun, and then you said you, you yelled "cut," and he was like, "What? What's going on?" Because he kept going. Psh, psh, psh. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a riot. He's on the White Lotus now. He's killing it. Oh, he's fantastic. He was yeah. he was a great interview too. Yeah, I bet he is. He he he's not afraid to talk. No, not at all. I had him on Orville as well. He's he's a fabulous actor. It was interesting to include the Borg Queen. And I thought Alice Krieger did a great job. And when I talked to her just a few years ago, really about a year or so ago, we spoke about her. I have no idea whether they knew when they wrote her for First Contact that she would become a sort of archetype, really, become so iconic. And because they created or tapped into and a true archetype. She is kind of, she means something different to everyone. So that people bring their own personal frame of reference to that character. Um, People find her uh, attractive, but are horrified by the fact that they do. She creates a kind of dissonance in people it's really difficult to reconcile your, the, the feelings that she throws up in you, whatever they may be. Some people think of her as the sort of epitome of, of AI and everything that's terrible, terrifying about that. It, everyone has a slightly different sense of who she is. I have no idea if they knew how potent the character would become in terms of audience connection with her. But she remains mysterious because every time they think they've got rid of her, they discover that they haven't. That's right. (laughs) So she's both potent and enigmatic and mysterious. And I actually think that she can't be destroyed. I think she is an entity that will persist in the universe. And now kind of some Star Trek news and bits that you're going to be hearing throughout the day here as I celebrate Star Trek Day. New Short Treks. It celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Star Trek animated series. According to Collider, we can see or maybe hear Ethan Peck, Jonathan Brakes, George Takei voicing or maybe acting in these short treks. It is animated. 
It's going to be airing Wednesdays, starting with September 8th, which is today, Star Trek Day, until October 4th on StarTrek.com. Casper Kelly is behind the stories, labeled anything but canon. And he said, talking to Collider recently, I'm writing them along with these two other writers, Claire Friedman and Aaron Waltke. I write them and then I'm directing them basically alongside with Awesome Incorporated, the animation studio. I think the challenge is this isn't something new I'm making myself. It is a beloved thing with a storied history. So it is negotiating, but what you want, you want to push limits. So what's the right limits to push? What's not right? What feels good? What makes it not feel like Star Trek anymore? And just figuring it all out because it is a show about optimism and hope for the future. But it's also a show that does not take itself too seriously. There is more at Collider.com with the interview with Casper Kelly. And I hope you enjoy the short treks. There is more of my Star Trek day, so you want to stay tuned and download all the episodes. <laughs>